I've had um, Wayne Gretzky by uh, Goldfinger stuck in my head all day. And like, I keep realizing I'm singing it under my breath. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, I got to stop. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the right song to sing out loud. No. People are going to think you're weird. No, I'm like sitting on the bus muttering it. <laughs> Creepy. I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener to figure out why. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. Oh man. What's up? Ready to podcast? That's good timing. You know, except for, you know, having a topic or things to talk about. Sure. But I'm ready to sit in front of a microphone (laughs) and figure this out. (laughs) Cool. Slept like 12 hours last night. (laughs) Is is it called a sprint if you just keep sprinting for miles and miles? (laughs) I don't know. It's just a run at that point, right? Yeah, I don't know what that's called. <laughs> I want to say a marathon, but that's the like you don't sprint a marathon. That's the whole point of a marathon, right? So right, torture maybe. <laughs> that starting know. pistol just keeps getting fired every <laughs> yeah. every hundred yeah. meters. <laughs> so they've changed this, but so the Gorek Challenge is this twelve-hour-long, crazy military-inspired um, endurance things, team-based, right? Um, crazy stuff and they have like different levels and when they introduced so they have the challenge which is like 12 ish hours and then they introduced the heavy which is 24 hours um and more weight and just like horrible and one of the things that they do at the beginning of go rock challenges is called a welcome party i won't go into it too much but it's like awful it's like hour two or four of just like kind of whatever the cadre the leader wants to throw at you and it's kind of miserable um and it's just it's explicitly designed like they're just trying to break you down early right so that if you're going to quit you don't quit they don't want you quitting 10 hours in right they want you to quit at the start line if you're not gonna you know it's all about mental toughness whatever anyway so the heavy is 24 hours so you get through 12 hours of the heavy right and then the cadre there's this like i was just reading the story i haven't done this but the the cadre is reading the story i was reading the story and the cadre is just like all right that's 12 hours down 12 hours to go that means welcome to the go Ruck challenge time for a welcome party. <laughs> and he had him do like a second two, three hour block of horrible PT stuff. 12 hours in awful. No, anyway, just no, I'm never doing that. Is this something you can spectate? I have kept talking about wanting to shadow one. Um, so you can shadow, uh, most of the time you'd want to volunteer as like a photographer. And you just follow them around with a backpack full of beer and a camera and try to stay out of the way and do what the cadre needs you to do. And like, they've had problems though with like, um, just cause it's kind of that kind of a group of people. I mean, they're all great, great people. Um, I mean, not all right, but like the ba- the vast majority of people in the go community are like awesome, awesome people, but you know, they like to drink a little bit. And so like, there was a problem for a while where people were going and shadowing these challenges or heavy or whatever. And just getting shit face drunk, just like <laughs> falling down, blackout drunk. And he was like, guys, you can't <laughs> like you, you can come, you know, you can help out and stuff. But when you're like a burden on top of the fact that like there's all there's these 30 people trying to just make it through these 12 hours, uh, that's not a good thing. So I would just be mad. I'm like busting my ass about to pass out. Oh, yeah. And then this person over here is just passed out because they drank too much beer. I don't want to see that. 
Yeah. The first time I did a challenge was St. Patty's Day 2012. (laughs) In Boston. In Boston. St. Patty's Day 2012 in Boston. We, so we did this thing called a ruck off, right? Okay, so the the main thing with the Garuk challenge, it's essentially a ruck march, right? So ruck being the military kind of jargon for a backpack with all your gear in it. So the main thing with the challenge is that you have a, a rucksack with like 40 pounds in it. So it's like a f- six bricks is what it is, plus water, food, anything else you need. So usually the packs end up being like 40 pounds. So you have like a ruck off beforehand where you get together with people, have your rucks off, you know, hang out, meet the team that you're – because it's a team-based thing, right? It's not an individual challenge. Everybody finishes. Um, That's the goal anyway. Uh, And you just hang out. And a lot of times these ruck offs happen at bars. And most of the time nobody drinks. But it was St. Patty's Day and I was doing it with some of the crazier people – in the community and dude these two chicks they were falling down before anything started it was like i don't see how this is going to work like we ended up splitting into two groups it was there was 60 of us so we split up into two 30 person teams and they were like (laughs) they went over there with those people and then a whole bunch of us were like okay we're gonna come over (laughs) we're gonna come come over here and not be on that team um and they made it like they they I can't imagine that they remember the first three hours, four hours of that thing, but they made it through the entire thing. Apparently, like I saw them at the finish line, they got their patches, which is what you get a like patch um, when you finish. Crazy. That's incredible. Yeah, I couldn't believe they made it. And another dude, another guy who lives here in Boston, he had I didn't even know they made these. It was a 72 ounce flask. <laughs> Do you know they made flasks? That's not even a flask anymore. I know. That's a bottle. That's a metal (laughs) bottle. (laughs) But he had a 72-ounce flask full of Jameson, and he was like, okay, whoever's on my team, we have to finish this before we hit the finish line. He's like, man, and they did that too. So (laughs) a not insignificant number of that team, the 30-person team, was like falling down drunk or on their way to drunk, plus 72 ounces of Jameson to split it was like dang they were like drinking guinness and stuff before this insane i was like how are you what is wrong with you i drank after it's way easier drinking after you have like one beer and you're just like shit-faced and (laughs) And then do you just sleep for a day after this or i went to a party in southie (laughs) i went to a party in south boston because they have a saint patty's day parade and it was like the worst decision because we had to take a cab over there and then walk like a mile. We still had our packs. We still had 40 pound packs on. We had just done 21 miles in 12 hours on top of with these packs on top of like being in the Charles river, which is never a good idea. And like, um, you know, running and pushups and like squats and all this crazy stuff. Right. And so then we, we took a cab to Southie, but then most of Southie was blocked off because of the parade. So then we had to walk like a mile to this party and we went to the party and we ended up like like we were just falling asleep like but like we were it was me and me and one of my best friends right and we were kind of like i would have a bunch of energy and i was drinking i'm like come on man let's go this, this is going to be fine and then he's like falling asleep and then we'd switch places and he'd be the one trying to get me to wake up <laughs> not fall asleep in the lawn chair and then eventually it was like dude we got to we got to go so then we had to put our packs back on and walk another mile back to the train station so we get home it's awful and then, yeah, I slept, like, 
I don't remember the rest of that day. I remember, I vaguely remember getting on the commuter rail to get back home. And then I think I slept until that was a Saturday. So that was a Sunday morning when we finished. Oh, cause it's overnight too. So I started at 10 PM and went to 10 AM the next day. I think I slept till Monday through to Monday morning and I didn't go to work on Monday. I was, I couldn't even walk. I was like on my couch. It's awful. Good times. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> development. <laughs> I don't know how to segue out of this. No, I think we're good. <laughs> That's good a show. show. Good show. All right. Yeah. Um, See you next week, everyone. Yeah. What'd you do this week? I'll tell you what I'm tired of implementing large static table views in code. Yeah. It's just so mind numbing. Miserable. Miserable. I had a conversation about static table views last night. We did NS Coder night last night. And afterwards, I was – or during the thing, I was having an argument with some people uh, or some some people about storyboards. And my main thing was like I never want to write static table view code ever again in my entire life. Like I'm done with that. I've done it. It sucks. It's it's an exercise in let's see how many switch statements I can put in one oh, view controller. Man. The worst. You're, like basically every t- data source or delegate like callback method requires a switch. Mm-hmm. Switch on the section – and not just one switch, nested switches. Sure, yeah. Like switch on each row in the section. Right. The last time I wrote one of those kind of nonsense static table views in code, I did a switch on the section inside. And I think I even broke it out into objects. So I had like section controllers, essentially. But it ends up being the same thing, right? Inside self-road index path, I'm switching on the section and then calling out to a section controller thing that would switch on the row and then return the proper cell. But it's still like switches inside switches. Like, abstracting the switches away from one another doesn't change the fact of what you're doing is just like this stupid tree hierarchy. Yeah, and that cleans up the controller, but then you've now spread everything out into all these separate objects, which arguably makes it a little harder to follow sure yeah as a whole yeah i think individually like the individual pieces become easier to track because you can say like it's clearer that when i hit this switch here's exactly what happens you know what i mean at least i can go to that one thing as opposed to like where does this switch terminate you know what i mean and and then if i especially if i have a nested switch it's like okay what's the actual repercussions of getting this index path you know this section in this row yeah the one thing I'll do is I'll map um, reuse identifiers to index paths at the start, like in view did load or something. Mm-hmm. So then at least self for row is relatively clean. We just get the the right reuse identifier for the index path. We create the right cell. Mm-hmm. And then I'll usually have a configuration for each reuse identifier as well. And mm-hmm. then just hand the cell off to the appropriate configuration method. You have some kind of mapping between the index paths and the reuse identifiers? Yeah, it's it's keyed by index path with the values being the constant for the reuse identifier. Uh-huh. But it's still ugly because you yeah. have to go through and like manually make all these index paths. That, right. And at least you know they're all well named because I use you know enums for mm-hmm. every section at the top, and then every section has one for all the rows. Mm-hmm. I do that thing, which kind of helps straighten it out a bit. So I'm not just throwing numbers around everywhere. Yeah. But you're just gonna have a bunch of nasty setup somewhere. It's just like, where do I hide this? Do you think there's a the possibility of some kind of decent abstraction there, like a static table view? I, I mean, I've written one, right? But it was essentially, it, I'm not, I don't remember how coupled it was to what I was doing, but I feel like we talked about static table view stuff early on, whatever. 
do you think there's like a easy API that is available? It's it, I don't know how to wrap all the stuff that we have to have in something that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it gets hairy because at, at the bottom level, something is going to have to represent the cell that it's going to end up being displayed right. in, the different things that that cell can take. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and how do you do that? Do you set model values on this cell? Do you just hand this cell some object and it knows how to fill itself in? Mm-hmm. Do you use protocols? But even the protocols and stuff, like those would work for your specific application. But like, is I don't. My question is more like, is there an open source component hiding here somewhere? You know, what I mean that someone like we could build or someone else could build to make this stuff easier. I'm not sure that there is, just because there's so much boilerplate setup that's inherently tied to your specific application, your specific classes, right? Like all of the register class for reuse identifier stuff and all of the configuration stuff and all the protocol stuff. You know what I mean? You're not going to have a protocol that works for everybody for, for, for objects that can be passed into cells. Yeah. I think any abstraction we could come up with would just be leaky. And then it's just something yeah, else to know right. on top of right. all this crap. You just like, it, it, it's like in cartoons when you'd have like a huge pile of dirt and you just like throw a rug over it. Like <laughs> right. That's I think exactly right. what we'd be right. doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At least it's a pretty amount of dirt. <laughs> Yeah. So for now, the best way is use storyboards, oh, but man, that's man. not an option for me. So mm. I'm writing disgusting static table view code. I really wish there was a way to break that up more and make that make, I don't know, man. I guess you could write some kind of an API. Like I'm just trying to think about just beginning with cell registration. You know what I mean? You'd still have to create some kind of mapping for, I think, I think actually, I, I remember now, because we did talk about this before. I think what I ended up doing is I was going the other way around, right? Is that I was creating cells outside of the context of a table view. I was just creating cell objects, like actual cell subclasses. And then I was handing those off to a section class. It was a wrapper around NS array or NS set at the time, and I don't remember why it was an NS set, whatever, not important. And then that was being passed into a, an object that conformed to a protocol that could do whatever it needed to do and acted as the data source layer. Um, then that would get, you'd pass that thing into the table view subclass. Everything just like went down the line and the table view controller subclass just asked this data source object what cell do I need for this index path? And then the data source would say, find the section and say, what cell do I need for this row? And then the section would just return the cell and just like flip all the way back up the chain. So the table view controller itself was super, super lightweight. Then for cell selection, the only thing it did do is on cell selection, it passed a method back the other direction. So it told the data source that it had a selected a cell at this index path and passed in self. So it passed in the instance of the view controller. And then that got passed down the line so that each cell had a selection handler and that block took a view controller. And so then the view con- from the cell selection, it could uh, fire off pushes and pulls and do whatever it needed. That was the one part, like it felt clean until I got to that part. And then it kind of got like, oh, that's weird. But yeah, that's questionable. Well, it's, well, it's like now your cell knows directly about the view controller, which is a step not, away. Not, not really. Not really, though. All it knows is that there was a view controller. And the section is the one that's actually calling the block and passing the view controller. This is how I've, I've justified this to myself already. <laughs> but, you know, one, there's no other good way that I could figure out to communicate that selection state. 
you know, back up the chain. Like, because you're creating the cells all the way over here, the cell should know there's no other there's no other concept of index paths in the entire system except for the fact that I'm kind of appending cells on. So doesn't I don't actually really care what what index path was tapped. I care what cell was tapped. That makes sense until you think about how do you then reference like what if you want to grab your related model object in the view controller in response to a selected cell? Yeah. So do you just turn around and get the index path back? This was essentially duplicating the concept of like segues. This was this was a replacement for like that kind of a thing um, inside a storyboard, right? Like no data is being passed. I just need to move to a new view. And then that view will do what it needs to do. Again, this was a weird system because there was very little actual state inside the application. And it was making a lot of like view, you know, on view will appear, it was making fetch requests and getting the data that it needed to populate itself. Again, like this worked for this specific use case. Um, I was happy with it. But again, like you're saying, like, I still don't think it's a replacement for I don't think it's a decent API for everybody. You know, Mm -hmm. how did you handle cell reuse identifiers? Didn't worry about it. Didn't worry oh, about so you, it. You Inside didn't... cell for road index path, I returned the cell that was handed to me. So the cells are created. They're static. You know, static table views inside storyboards don't use reuse identifiers either. They, it, you don't need them. I have 10 cells, period. You know what I mean? Like, so I'll just create them all, hold them in memory. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not playing movies in every cell. Like, they're fine. They're it's a super low overhead. And I'll just hold on to them and I'll just pass them into this thing. And then it, it'll just display them when it, when it needs to. So, okay, that... That makes sense. Yeah. What so I guess I'm asking because in my setup, this table view isn't truly static. There are one or two sections that will have a dynamic number of rows. So it's more of a hybrid. Yeah. So I actually have to use reuse identifiers. There's four different types of cell. Well, can you just set the cell height as zero if you need to? Like keep the cell there. Just implement height for road and height for cell or whatever the hell that freaking – Method is called, but the, the height the height for that cell and just return zero, and that'll collapse the cell, and it'll essentially not be there, and you won't be able to tap it. You won't be able to do anything. It'll be like the, you know, implementation-wise, like that could clean up a bunch of stuff, right? So you're statically filling the table with, like, more rows than you need. Yeah. And then in height for row, if you're just taking all the rows that will not get filled, like everything beyond the count of the array that's filling this thing in, and you're just setting all those to zero, how would you ever get uh, – oh, Yeah. Are we talking about the same thing? Like whatever state I'm in right now says that cell, you know, zero three shouldn't show up. Okay. Here's an example. Like on this current project, we're doing that like inline picker inside the table view. You know what I mean? Like Apple's recommended way to do pickers. Um, Shit show. The thing that they say is like real easy and then they don't give you anything to implement it with. And so you just implement it yourself. Stupid. The sample code is a. (laughs) ridiculous but so the way we did that was actually was static and again we were using storyboards but the concept is still the same we had we just put that picker element inside our table view at like the you know below where it should show up so if you look at our storyboard it's got a picker element there and then we just have a reference to it and then when you're not in the state that it should be showing that cell has a height of zero and when you tap a button or tap the cell that should show that thing, then we refresh that specific cell 
right? We just refresh that specific cell with whatever animation type. And inside the height for a row and height for a cell at index path, whatever, we return the proper height so it animates open. And then exactly the opposite when we need to close it. Now, the normal use case is that that cell would always be visible, but just in like a normal size state that would like summarize the, the value of the picker, right? Say that again? Well, I, th- I think the way Apple uses it is that it's like it says, uh, you know, let's take a calendar event, mm-hmm. for example, and you're setting a start time. Mm-hmm. It would say start time, and then on the right, it would have the actual human readable date. And then if you tap that, that cell expands. That same cell expands. Yeah. How does that work? How do you manage the two states of like I'm in picker mode or I'm in like display mode? Did select did select row in the next path, and then if the row is the picker row, then we set a boolean. I think that just says like should be showing picker element or something like that. You know what I mean? That but that's essentially how simple it is. And then inside cell, uh, inside the cell height thing, we just have a conditional it says if it's if this boolean is set, return the constant that we've defined as being the the proper height. And if it's not, then return zero. My question is, in that case, is does the cell own the picker view, or does the controller own it and put it into the cell when it's needed and take it out? But it's it's a different cell. It's its own cell. It's always there, and it's its own it's its own cell. We're not we're so the thing that the 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 cell that you tap is separate from the cell that shows up when you need the picker. So the the picker is in its own cell, mm. and we're just controlling that cell independently. And then the controller has a reference to the picker. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I need to go back and look at how Apple does it in theirs, though. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how they do it. I remember looking at it and not liking it, and then Tony actually came up with this implementation, and I liked it a lot better. It felt a lot cleaner. Plus, now that you can do section separator insets so easy, you know, you, now that you can change the separator insets, just kick the freaking thing off. You know what I mean? If you want, it, if you want two cells, I, I, I've done this a bunch on this one, and it's, again... It's easier because we're in storyboards, so I can select the cells and change the section insets myself. But anytime there were two th- two things that I thought should really be two cells, but they just happened to not have a separator in between them, I just set the inset for 320 left. So it just kicks it off the edge of the screen so that I don't have to deal with it. That's smart. So you could do the same thing. You you could do the same thing with this, right? You could still you could have it look like it's one cell that grows. Right, because the separators are at the top of your actual cell and then the bottom of the picker, but it could actually still be two cells, and you just are kicking the separator off so that there's no visual separation between the two cells. Yeah, I like that. That seems much better. Yeah. Nice trick. Yeah. I, I liked it. That's what I'm saying, man. It's like I was super annoyed that they showed this off as being like, like I swear, maybe I missed something. I don't know. Maybe I missed something somewhere, but every time they talked about this inline picker thing, they made it sound like it was just a almost like as simple as an input view. You know what I mean? Like assign a picker to the input view of this field and hey, it'll all just work. And then you like you could have done this in in iOS 6. There's no reason that you couldn't have done this in iOS 6 unless I'm missing something huge, but there's literally no added API for this. It's just oh no, just throw a, you know, picker in a cell and then animate its height. That's what no, you it, 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 it's not you. I was in that keynote when they announced it, and it was they announced it as if it was like a major addition right. to, to UI kit. And I was thinking, oh, this must be a new cell style, right? It's yeah. like a like a picker cell, right? Like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I see the sample code, and you're like manually managing <laughs> yeah, the picker no, and putting no. it into the view. And 
It's nothing. I mean, that's not that's not new. Like like I said, we could have done that in iOS two for Christ's sake. Like there's literally. I mean, maybe I don't know. There could have been something keeping us from. It just would have looked horrendous. It just would have that old style. Right. Like the, that's the, the that's the only thing that's different is that because it's now this kind of new weird white style, it just happens to look like it fits with a table view cell. But that's not a feature. <laughs> that's a coincidence, right? <laughs> Somebody took the the reveal app and like took a look at the picker view. Oh, it's, it's table views all the way down. It's yeah. ridiculous. Insane. I don't know. Maybe we can open source something. I may pull it out. Just a demo implementation. Because it's dead simple. I mean, like, especially using a storyboard to set it up is like dead simple to animate that kind of stuff. Way easier than I was making it in my head. You know what I mean? When I was like just talking to the client and I was like, uh like once they were like, we want to do this. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. That's an Apple's new thing, right? Like, we can totally do that. I think I actually suggested it. I was like, oh, no, Apple has this new thing where, like, you can have the inline picker stuff. It'll look great. So I sold them on it. And then I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> this isn't, you know, now I got to make this. Like, and, and I kept putting it off. And then I gave it to Tony. And I was like, hey, we need to do this thing. And then like 10 minutes later, he had it working. I was like, oh, thank God. That was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. Tony's good for stuff like that. Yeah. He'll surprise you. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. Uh, what else? I still been writing Ruby all day. I wrote a server in Objective-C today. Well, not Whoa. just today, but I know it was super weird. It was like role reversal for me. Like the past two weeks, I've spent four days writing Ruby and then one day writing <laughs> Objective-C, which has been weird. And then... We're working on this internal Mac app demo thing, uh, proof of concept thing. And it actually communicates with a Ruby thing, right? But it's all flipped. So I'm pairing with one of our Ruby developers on it. And he wrote a client in Ruby that like makes post requests. And I wrote a server application that receives post requests and then does stuff with the json <laughs> that he posted what are you using routing http server it's a layer on top of coco http server i think oh and it's inspired by sinatra yeah it's really easy honestly it's a layer on top of coco http server so it's got some dependencies that i'm not super happy with and there's a bunch of freaking warnings in the project because it deprecated methods and all this stuff whatever but creating a server and getting it to respond to requests is dead simple and it acts a lot like sinatra you just literally say you create the server tell it what port and the headers you want it to have and then you just say handle method get with path slash block and then just do what you need to do in the block and it defaults to a 200 so most of the time like we don't need to do anything you know what i mean like we have specs like we've been testing the whole thing you know what i mean so there's tests to make sure everything works and most of it just kind of works and we're doing we're not actively trying to act like a server we're just saying like when you get this request kick off this stuff over here or when you get this request do this other thing over here it's pretty this makes, sweet this makes me want to write out like a fake for a service yeah using this i think you totally could honestly i don't know if it'd be overkill though the api seems simple enough the where API i could see does, yeah. like you have this endpoint you want to test against and it's easy but you still have to have a ns url protocol layer inside your client app 
that says like, for example, fake Dropbox thing, right? Like, so maybe you make an app that runs as fake Dropbox. You'd still have to have an NS URL protocol thing inside your app that says, hey, I know you're trying to talk to dropbox.com, but kick it over here to localhost port, whatever, instead, right? And so at that point, when you need two things, uh, and we've had we've talked about this briefly before. I think it would be really interesting to see someone come out with like a fake Dropbox, just an example, but like a fake Dropbox library that sits on top of uh, like HTTP stubs, you know what I mean, which is already a network stubbing library and has a preset JSON fixture responses for all the different requests and then just does all the matching and stuff sets itself up and kills itself and whatever. So that you could just include it in your testing bundle, maybe say, you know, fake Dropbox start kind of a thing or, you know, stub all requests or stub these specific requests mm-hmm. and then, and then have it handle all the stuff, but not go all the way to creating like a, a fake server since you're already, yeah. you, you can already catch HTTP responses from inside the app, inside the testing framework. I'm not sure that you need to go all the way out to something like this. Well, okay. I was just thinking of having it, you know, vend a protocol. Having this vend a protocol? Like if I, if I were to go the route of like building a fake server, mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to initialize it at some point, right? And I would just make part of initialization. The, it, it gives you back an NSURL protocol that's ready to go. Oh, it's like configured for this server. All you have to do is just, you know, inject it and just start going and everything is getting routed to your server instead i think this works on yeah this works on ios too so you could there's probably work that could be done on top of nsurl protocol as an adapter that makes it really easy to map to like um you know restful Mm. requests just be like you know give me this template of what it should look like and then i can determine if it's you know two requests are equivalent which try to do some of the boilerplate of like routing and build mm-hmm. that on top of NSURL protocol. And then everyone can just build, you know, subclasses of that that are for you know, Foursquare, Twitter API. What do you mean? Is that significantly different from what OHTTP stubs is doing? No, no, I'm sure it's very yeah. similar. Yeah. I'm just exploring this because it's new and exciting. Yeah. OHTTP stubs does a nice job of, like, being able to set up matchers very much like this. Like, you can just essentially match a literal URL or, like, just a... You actually pass – I think it takes a block that's like – does something like stub requests passing test, right? And then hands you the request. And so then you can just make assertions and then return yes or no whether or not it should stub that, which is super nice. You know what I mean? It just sits there between your tests or whatever and the actual network and just reroutes stuff based on your criteria. I do think it would be easy to make a fake whatever service with OHTTP stubs, but then you're depending on OHTTP stubs. Yeah. Which I don't think is bad. I think it's a pretty nice lightweight library. I've been happy with it. So what do you think about this rumor that Apple bought up TestFlight? Was it a rumor? I thought it was like a thing. I thought like it happened. I don't know if it's actually confirmed. Hold on. I think I still have that browse, that tab open. So I think all we know is that it's being acquired. Well, and, and it's not them either. It's Burstly. Well, whatever. Who, who's heard of Burstly? Right. We're really talking about test flight. I guess it's not. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that test flight is killing Android support. That's interesting. Okay, I guess I, I guess Apple did make a comment that says Apple buys smaller technology companies from time to time, and we generally do not discuss our purpose or plans. So that's a yes. 
That's an Apple yes. I can see them. I mean, they kind of got into this a little bit already, right, with uh, Xcode server stuff. You know, the Xcode server stuff still has its problems that keep it from being useful like this. But but they do allow you to send out links to people for builds, and they do some of this stuff already. So that's piggybacking on the enterprise stuff. Right, but so is this. All the ad hoc stuff is already piggybacking on the enterprise stuff. That's how it all works. When when Test Flight and Hockey first came out, they were almost, especially Hockey, at least from my memory, Hockey was almost explicit about the fact that they were exploiting a loophole, or not exploiting a loophole, but it it was the method that they were using was almost a byproduct of enterprise support when mm-hmm. Apple added enterprise support. And then Apple just kind of Again, my memory of it is that this kind of stuff wasn't originally intended for ad hoc distribution like this, not for over-the-air stuff. It was intended for enterprise distribution, but there were these concessions that Apple was making that allowed it to be used for this kind of thing. And so you could create these beta testing profiles, and the installation process just happened to work through the enterprise thing, right? It wasn't like they were explicitly saying – also, if you need to distribute for your ad hoc people, here's this method that you can use. It was more like, here's how you distribute for enterprise. And then the guys that made hockey and, and, and test flight were like, oh, hey, that looks like it'll also, it would also work. Like, that doesn't look enterprise specific. That just looks like it's provisioning profile specific. So let's see if it works with these ad hoc profiles. I could be totally wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my understanding because I remember I was following um, Andreas Linde, the guy who originally made hockey, mm-hmm. which was an open source project for a while and was awesome, uh, self-hosted. I, I guess I don't understand. Well, I mean, maybe it's not just test flight that they want because it seems like given that this is piggybacking on functionality that Apple added, why would they go out and buy this when they could presumably just roll their own? Like if they really were just try to, trying to get like this like – distribution system in-house and part of the tool chain why buy it like how far ahead could they be this this does not make me optimistic honestly like not even just being kind of a negative nancy about (laughs) acquisitions by large companies like this you know what i mean um i i i'm not filled with a whole bunch of hope (laughs) for test flights future like looking at this article i didn't know that they had done any of this but apparently they shut down their Android support as of March 21st. They also discontinued the test flight SDK. They also shut down flight path, which was the analytics solution. Like, so they shut down essentially, it sounds like they shut down everything except for the beta distribution stuff. Hmm. And they had already done that before the acquisition. Well, before we knew about it. Well, yeah, before we knew about it. I don't know anything about Burstly. I just know that they bought test flight. Yeah. I've never heard of Burstly. Skyrocket, apparently. I don't know what Skyrocket is. This is is new to me. Skyrocket. Monotonize any ad partner. That sounds fun. The only comprehensive solution to mobile app monotonization. Monetization? Monetization. This is one of those words that I read and never say. Monotonization is making something monotonous. That makes sense. (laughs) Maybe it'll lead to more people moving to hockey. Worst case scenario, at least hockey's still around. Either rate, it seems Apple is slowly marching towards bringing all these technologies in-house, 
that are all the things that we're using anyway, end-to-end app development. They're just yeah. trying to be more in control of all of it. Yeah, it would be interesting if they have a more official hosted way to do the beta distribution stuff. Although <laughs> that may not be awesome because I have a feeling it would be controlled through the developer portal, right? And like I can't imagine what that would look like. <laughs> it it could either be way easier or way harder. But it would be cool to roll the distribution into the App Store app. If you could simply just tell your beta testers, open the App Store app. You are already on this provisioning profile. Apple knows about it. You get this new section where you can see like the apps that are available to you. Yeah. That'd be cool. I mean, if we're talking about <laughs> you know, like wishes and whatever, like it would be uh, – someone brought this up at one point. But like instead of provisioning via hardware – device id like the uid of the device provisioning by apple id you know like you don't have to give me anything except for your apple id and here's here's a list of people who i'm saying like yes it's cool if these people download the app you know what i mean and then yeah they either get it pushed to their phone through the automatic app update system or they just have to click an email or or initiate a download somehow but they don't have to – no provisioning profiles, no crazy, weird, hacky, I feel like, configuration thing that you install on your system and then adds a web clip and also, by the way, does weird sh- – like those things, I don't fully understand what those configuration profiles do. And that weirds me out every time I install it, right? Yeah. Because it feels like they're magic. Like it feels like they have access to a lot of information and then send a bunch of information and can kind of do a whole bunch of stuff. The reason they don't use an Apple ID is because you could conceivably log into that Apple ID on any device and download right. all kinds of stuff. You could conceivably do that anyway. We could conceivably have one Apple ID that you and I and all of ThoughtBot share, and we just, whenever we want an app, it's been bought on this Apple ID and we log in and buy it. Or we log in and download it. But updates don't keep, you know what I mean? Like you can, my point, my point is that like that hole exists now, right? I could buy, for example, Final Cut Pro 10, right? I could buy it. And then I could, when I'm on your computer, I could be like, here, let me give you Final Cut Pro 10. And I could log out of your thing, log into my thing, hit the download button, and then log out and log back in as you. And now you have Final Cut Pro 10 but you're not going to get any updates for it, right? It's it's not it's not a limitation, it's just a pain point. Like you can physically get those applications, you just can't it's a pain afterwards. It's a it's a pain to deal with that kind of a thing. But I don't think it's bad to remove the limitation on the number of devices that are installed, right? I shouldn't have to take up two spots because someone happens to have be a good, you know, quote-unquote good Apple customer, right? And they've got a iPhone and a iPad. Mhm. Or like look at our freaking provisioning center, whatever, is a great example of like how it can just go horribly wrong, right? You have a company, you know, I spent I spent almost a full day trying to clean out that devices list, you know what I mean? And renaming crap. And it's like, hey man, you've got four different iPhone fives in here. Can you tell me which one is your actual one so I can deactivate the other four and then we'll get these spots back in a year? You know what I mean? That sucks. It'd be much easier to just be like you know, inside the company or, you know, for the beta distribution, whatever, to just say, like, 
Apple ID. And I don't care what devices you have. I don't care what devices you it doesn't it doesn't hurt me when you buy a new device. I'm not penalized by you trying to keep up to date with the technology. You know what I mean? It just still kind of works because it's your Apple ID. It's linked to that. I just had the thought that um, people developing a universal app are kind of screwed with that 100 device limit yeah. because they want to divvy it up, obviously, like iPads and iPhones. Yeah. Make sure it works. And yeah. now you've limited the pool of each to 50. Right. Probably less. Right. Because, again, if you buy a new device inside a year, then you can't get that spot back. Plus, you add beta testers that end up being crappy beta testers, which is most beta testers, right? Most beta testers suck and don't give feedback and maybe don't even install the app. But now they're sitting in your device pool for the next year, Mm -hmm. which whatever, they'd still be there, but at least they're only taking up one spot versus possibly two. And people have said like, oh, well, let's just up the number of spots we're given, right? Like to some, like the stupid, I think it's a horrible idea, but like the pro developer account concept right like let me pay you instead of paying a 100 bucks let me pay you a thousand bucks a year right and get access to this pro level where i have expedited reviews always and phone support that doesn't run out and all these other stupid magical wish list things that like you know are of course being asked for by the people that already have more access than you know the rest of us do to like apple engineers you know what i mean like Whatever. I don't want to get into that. But um, that doesn't even solve the problem because you're still limiting it to devices. You know what I mean? So you're always going to hit this number. And you're in managing 2,000 devices isn't going to be any better than managing 100 devices. You run out slower, but it's more crap to deal with. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, that was a healthy rant. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have anything else you want to add this week? I don't think so. I think we talked enough. Wrap it up? Yeah. Awesome. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash buildphase slash 28. And we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or contact us on Twitter or app.net, just at buildphase. Also, ratings and reviews on iTunes are highly desirable. Okay. (laughs) Every week, I have to come up with a different way of saying it. So I just got real proper that time. All right. That's fair. I mean, I'll see you. All right, later.